Welcome. You're listening to the Field Blend Project Podcast. The Field Blend Project aims to promote the convergence of science, wine, and creativity by creating a space for education and discussion. Here, we believe in sharing bottles and sharing knowledge. We strive to unravel the intricacies of the wine industry by diving deep into topics regarding wine. I'm your host, Kayleen Bryson, and I'm excited that you're here. This week, we sit down and talk to one of my best friends in the wine industry, Abby. Uh, Abby was the first person to get me into the Santa Cruz Mountains wine industry. I was doing these tastings on Fridays, and I met this person who I now know as Abby. She was like, do you want a job in a tasting room? And I was like, you know what? I kind of do. I miss the wine industry. And like, literally within a week, I had a job. So I basically owe my presence in the Santa Cruz Mountains wine industry to Abby. Uh, Abby and I were also graduate students in the science department at University of California, Santa Cruz. And she left that and decided to devote all of her science knowledge and education into the wine industry, which is amazing. (laughs) Um, So with that and her years and years of experience in the industry, she brings a very unique and very critical lens to a seller. And as a consequence, she is essentially a staple in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So right now, Abby works at Bonnie Dune Vineyard and she does enology for Bonnie Dune Vineyard. And today we discuss what the day-to-day life is like as an enologist, (laughs) Um, how you work with a winemaker and separate from a winemaker, the kinds of analyses that you run, what the analyses do and do not tell you. Um, And we also talk about sort of the trials and troubleshooting that you have to go through. And so I'm excited. Uh, And I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. So before we get started with Abby, I wanted to sit down and talk about corrections from last week. So um, there's this other podcast that I love called Muller She Wrote, and they do a segment called Corrections. And, you know, I I also feel like that is necessary. So we're going to talk about the stuff that I got wrong kind of ish last week. Um, also happy homecoming week. I don't mean homecoming, like high school dance homecoming. I mean, Beyonce's new Netflix documentary. I have watched it beginning to end in its entirety thrice and I've played it. I don't even know how many times it's been on my Spotify. Most like the top of the most recently played all week long. No regrets, no regrets. Um, so happy homecoming week. But corrections from last week, these are pretty minor and these did go on our social media platform. Um, But still, it's nice to have them in an auditory format as well. So the big thing I got was people wanted clarification on what I meant by microsatellites being conserved across Vitis vinifera as a species, but also different. So last week we discussed the work of Dr. Carol Meredith and her analyses on parentages of Vitis vinifera and how she deduced these parentages through a a technique called microsatellite analysis. You can go back and listen to it if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But um, in that episode, we discuss how there are locations for microsatellites, which are called a locus. So when I say that these things are conserved across species, 
the location of a microsatellite is conserved across all of Vitis vinifera. What is also conserved are the regions that are outside of those microsatellites, which as we discussed, we use those and they are required to do the experiments that we consequently do to discover parentages. So I wanted to clarify that when I say that microsatellites are conserved across Vitis vinifera, the location of that is conserved, the sequence around the microsatellite is conserved, but the fact that they are different lengths is not conserved. And that's what tells us which one belongs to Chardonnay and which one belongs to Pinot Noir is the, is the length or the number of repeats within that microsatellite. So I hope that clarifies things. Again, that's also um, saved on our social media page and we addressed it there, but I think it's important to also address it here. I think at one point I also said the Department of Enology and Viticulture at UC Davis, other way around, Department of Viticulture and Enology, VNE, is UC Davis. Um, and I think those were actually all the corrections that I had from last. Oh, right. So I wanted to, to also talk about the words primers versus oligos versus probes. So at one point, I used the word primer, but I really should have been saying oligo. And that was when we were talking about those radio labeled probes. I called them radio labeled primers. So a primer is a small piece of DNA that can be extended off of. So um, this is different from an oligo, which is just a small piece of DNA that you can use for anything, um, which is different from a probe, which is a tool that you can use in your analysis to probe or look at a system. And so those radio labeled probes, while they are small pieces of DNA, we're not using them to elongate off of. So they're not technically a primer. They are an oligo. I am sure like literally nobody else cared. But uh, we here at the Field Blend Project are all about honesty and calling our own selves on our bullshit. So I was not a primer, I was a probe. And that's important. <laughs> um, okay, so now without further ado, let's hear from Abby. Actually, thank you for coming here and hanging out with me. Um, it's been great. Yeah, this means this is a lot to me because <laughs> I literally wouldn't be here interviewing you if you, in the first place, didn't make me feel like I actually had a place in the Santa Cruz Mountains wine community. Oh, so well, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, thank you. I, I seriously really appreciate it. Thank you. So, uh, as we get started, can you first introduce who you are and where you're from? Sure. My name is Abby Crystal. Um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, just, just north of there, Worthington. I've been here in Santa Cruz just just almost 10 years, coming up on 10 years in, a, in next month. And uh, it's a great place to be. What did, to be here. What did you come to Santa Cruz for, specifically? I came here um, because of the Earth Sciences program at UCSC. I was on an academic track for a while there doing um, climate change research in the broader sense, um, reconstructing climate change over glacial 
cycles. And um, so I, I came here to, to pursue a PhD and just didn't do well at that. <laughs> just, it, just, it just didn't work out the way I had envisioned at all. But luckily, um, the whole wine world was here and I had um, sufficient background in, in wine to already be interested and had a bit of a passion for it as well. And and then I realized that I had an aptitude for um, chemistry and the quality assurance kind of analyses that go along with winemaking and um, kind of found a place for myself in, in that world here, which has been great. So you said you had a pretty extensive background in wine even before you started your PhD? Yeah, on more on the sales and tasting oh, side okay. from working in restaurants. Um, and I, I was lucky to get a lot of training from bartending and waiting tables um, on wines of the world and um, you know, just tasting in general and wine appreciation. Um, but definitely didn't know much about production and um, all the chemistry and uh, all that kind of stuff that goes into it. Um, so that was a fun thing to, to dig into and to realize that, like I said, that I actually had a skill set that would permit me to understand that stuff and yeah, so what was that, that transition like then from going, I, I guess, how did you even get started, right? Like, just how did you get your tasting rooms? Okay, so you, so kind of like you, uh, oh, you mean early on in restaurants or like or transitioning back in, from academia to, I, I guess, both a, a bigger picture transition. How did you transition from, you know, PhD academia world into the production world? Uh, I, I started very similar to you, I just started working, um, one shift a week at a tasting room, Sones also. Mm-hmm. Um, both both Kaylee and I had our introduction to the Santa Cruz wine worlds through through this lovely family, the Sones cellar yeah, on the west side of Santa Cruz. Awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so while while I was still doing my research and and a student at UCSC, I was working just one shift a week at Sones. And um, I mean my my research project just completely fell apart for like the third time. And (laughs) I just sort of was, you know, hitting my head against the wall, just wanting to give up. And, um, I had met my, my partner, my husband now, Ken, and he made it clear he was never moving back to Ohio with me. So (laughs) (laughs) we got to establish something. It's like, I like you, but I'm not moving to Ohio (laughs) or anywhere else for that matter. So, so it was really, um, you know, getting creative and finding a way that I could do something that I found fulfilling and interesting and mentally stimulating, um, and that would allow me to stay here in Santa Cruz. Okay. So it's not not a very super romantic transition, but um, at least not in the um, in the professional sense. But it yeah, has ended up sense. in the personal sense. There, there yeah. was some romance, but <laughs> um, it did end up being something that really. Um, has been a, a good transition for me and fulfilling. I found a good work community here that I really like, and yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just Santa Cruz Mountains winemaking community is a group of really interesting and cool people. So yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good characters doing mm-hmm. good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, what has your what? If someone looked at your resume, what's on it? You know? Gosh. Yeah, I mean, I have my my very first job was at. Well, my very first like real job on a payroll somewhere, not counting babysitting, was um, 
at a restaurant, Tony's Underground Pizzeria in Worthington, Ohio. And that was, I was maybe 15, I think I was 14. And um, so I had pretty much worked at restaurants straight from then until I was 27, 26, 27. And then even once I moved out here, that's that's about the time that I moved out here, even then um, I would still pick up shifts and work in catering and that kind of stuff on, on the weekends. So I've always found it hard to completely separate myself from the food and wine world. I, I definitely find a really strong connection to it. And, um, and it's been nice to come full circle to it. I totally forget what your question was, but <laughs> if someone looked at your resume, what would they oh, yeah. see? Cause we're yeah. going to be talking today about, uh, different things you can do in enology yeah. and what it means to be enologist. So, you know, how you get from, yeah. you know, PhD front of the house, yeah. working in restaurants to, I am an enologist among other things that yeah. you do in the cellar, of course, but. I think um, probably the top column or like the very thing after my name on my resume should probably be like Abby Crystal ADD. <laughs> um, so I um, really, <laughs> really forget the PhD yeah, stuff. Yeah, just, like just, BS yeah, stuff. Just ADD. Um, yeah, I, I don't do well um, with things that I don't like. And so if I'm not satisfied and interested, um, it, it's not going to go well for me. And, um, and, and so I think I've had a, a lot of career changes in that sense. So I, I always wanted to be a scientist. I mean, I think I went from, I want to be a ballerina when I was like three to I'm going to be an oceanographer. <laughs> My parents were like, okay, uh, where did that come from? Yeah. Um, but they were really supportive and I, and I ended up going to U- UNC Wilmington for their marine, marine science program down there. And I got, uh, that was kind of the beginning of the whole like global warming time when we, the schools were really starting to push this as a, a curriculum and understanding, we're, we're really understanding the science, we're starting to see the changes. Um, and so I really got drawn into that world and started thinking a lot about climate change. And I thought maybe I wanted to do environmental law. Oh, okay. And so I ended up doing a, um, a, my bachelor's in environmental studies and I think I have a minor in Spanish too. I never used that until I moved out here, but, um, that that's where I started. And, and I moved back home to Ohio and worked like a clerking job at a law firm, but it was a big law firm. And I was working on the kind of cases that I would want to be like prosecuting in my, in a real job. And I was realizing, man, that'd be hard to be up against those people <laughs> and like yeah. uh, these people that are making a ton of money. I, anyway, it just lost its luster. And so in the interim, I, I just went back to um, working at restaurants and I spent, I, I was a pastry chef and like made, made all the pasta and desserts at a wonderful Italian restaurant and Santa Cruz worked at a high-end French restaurant for a while. And I just had a lot of fun with that, but, uh, but eventually I kind of missed the mental stimulation. And so I, um, started taking classes at Ohio State, just getting, I had a BA and I, so I kind of started taking the classes that would allow me to um, make up the difference between a BA and a BS, not really knowing what I wanted to do with it, but taking physics and calculus and um, I did like genetics and biochemistry and organic chemistry and all that kind of stuff and um, geology. And then, and I ended up just as an elective 
taking a class with a professor at Ohio State that was really cool. And I, he did, it was a historical geology class. It's fascinating. And so this started, opened a door for me to bring in my, the interest I had in climate change and the interest I had in natural science. And I went along on this tangent of um, like reconstructing climate history by looking at environmental records. Um, so paleoclimatology, paleoceanography. And I did a master's and I did a research position at Los Alamos National Lab. I worked for Thermo Fisher for a couple of years installing oh. mass spectrometers. Um, huh. and, and then applied for a PhD to come to UCSC. And, um, and, and that was like a three-year – I think I made it three years before I just totally threw in the towel on that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just – I I have to be fully feeling inspired and interested and passionate about what I'm doing, and I'm and so I I tend to kind of change what I'm doing to make sure that I have that feeling. Yeah. And but I I, I think there's a lot of room in the wine world for especially where I work at Bonnie Dune. They're so good. They really give me a lot of flexibility. Of, researching this working on this project and giving me little things to to work on and do and yeah do you know audrey who does the books at uh big basin Mm -mm. anyway i was just talking to her last night about something similar where for a long time i tried to fight the fact that i was really interested in a lot of things Mm -hmm. and then i was only moderately good at a lot of things instead of being really great at one thing Mm -hmm. you know it's like allowing Mm -hmm. yourself to be okay with being a pretty decent at a lot of things yeah. is fine you yeah, know it's more fun it is more fun yeah mm-hmm. so speaking of the many things that you do and <laughs> one of them being enology can you define what an enologist does sure so an enologist to me is the an expert in the science of wine um, as opposed to uh, solely a winemaker would be like the person or group or company or whatever that is actually from start to finish making the wine and there's there is definitely some overlap between those two and you can be both but you can be a winemaker without being an enologist and you can be an enologist without being a winemaker yeah so when you get into the winery as an enologist as a function of the cycle of a winery in a year Mm -hmm. what is what are some of the things that you're doing once you get into that cellar um, yeah, like you said, it really depends on the time of year. Uh, are, are we bringing fruit in? Are we just determining the ripeness of fruit and deciding when to pick? Do we have ferments going? Are we trying to um, understand where we are in the ferment and how close we are to being finished? Uh, are we monitoring the malolactic fermentation? Are we monitoring the barrel aging process and checking for microbial stability, making sure there's no issues. Are we getting ready for bottling? So it's all very contingent on, on the time of year. But for me, where I work currently, I just, I check in with the winemakers. Generally, I have an idea of what's on the calendar for the week, what projects are happening. And, and so I'll know what analyses more or less need to be done, um, collect samples and get those run. And there's some things that I just do cyclically, like things that are in barrel that are we're thinking we're going to be bottling it sometime soon. I, I check in with those at least once a month. So I just, you know, I'll put that on my calendar every second Tuesdays, barrel analyses or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I have a little 
a little bit of autonomy in that sense that I, there's things that I know I have to do and I just do those. And then there's also checking in with the winemaker or the winemaking team each day or at least each week and understanding what needs to be done for the winemaking staff that week. Okay. So do those tasks then change pretty dramatically from harvest versus after things are dry versus bottling? Or do you think that those are actually pretty consistent throughout your year? I mean, the basic day-to-day is very similar. Collecting samples, performing analyses, doing you know some data assessing, making sure that everything looks right, data recording, data entry. Um, all, all that stuff is pretty consistent, but the, the type of analyses that I'm doing uh, or in the type of sample that I'm collecting might be different depending on the time of year. Um, and you know the, I, the easiest time of year, analytically speaking, is during harvest because we're not we're just monitoring the ferments and we're m- making a lot of measurements, but they're quick. So I'm just doing, using a density meter to check the bricks and I'm using a thermometer to check, check the temperature and that's about it. And theoretically, if there was a problem with one, I might check in on the volatile acidity, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't happen very often, thankfully. So really it's just constant checking on the, on the tanks um, and the, you know, the ferments. Yeah. But that's, it's pretty easy. then there's a lot of other work that's going along with harvest but analytically speaking that's the easiest time of year (laughs) yeah yeah it's funny too because it's it is the busiest time of year Mm -hmm. but it's yeah you're that's a perfect way to describe it if you were if you were only an enologist Mm -hmm. if that's all you did which is for the size of wineries that we work at not plausible Mm -hmm. but that would be the easiest time of your life Mm -hmm. yeah so let's talk about um some of the main things that we do in the lab because you know, these things are black magic and voodoo to a lot of people. And they're like, why would you need a wine chemist if you have a winemaker? Um, but there's a really, I think, pertinent role for understanding what these things do. Because if anything goes awry, who are you going to ask to troubleshoot it, right? Like, yeah. your enologist. So Well, and if it, things go awry, it can be a really expensive problem. I mean, that, right, people have been making wine for literally millennia without even any understanding of chemistry or biochemistry or microorganisms or anything. And I'm sure they made some lovely wines, you know, I'm sure. I think we've probably even had examples of something. I think they, somebody found some champagne from like a couple hundred years ago that was in a, in a sunken ship. Right. And and it's good. It's delicious. Oh, Oh, really? I heard it was delicious. Oh, (laughs) but you know, maybe we're thinking of a different sunken ship wine. Maybe. Well, and probably if somebody spent $10,000 on it, they want to believe it's delicious. (laughs) So, um, yeah, but anyway, point being that you can make wine without all of these analyses, of course, but it's an expensive endeavor. And especially when you're trying to be on like a large commercial scale, you you're, you're making lots of wine that could be a 10,000 gallon lot of wine. If you mess that up, that's really expensive. I mean, you're talking about yeah. millions of dollars. Well, and if you're thinking about a wine too, that you want, you want a consistent product. And if you also are making wine, that's like, you know, say you're very high in production, it's going to sit on a shelf for a long time. Are you shelf, shelf stable? stable? Like, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things. So let's start breaking down some of those, um, some of those assays that we run in the lab and assay being a thing that an experiment that you run that can give you output in 
in a high throughput or like low throughput manner. It's just a way of saying it's basically like a function. You put something in and then you get something out. That's what an assay essentially is. And so um, one of the things that we very commonly will assay uh, are it is R, R, um, <laughs> pH and TA. Mm-hmm. And then can you define pH and TA? Sure. Yeah. pH, um, I'm assuming this is still like a science audience that we're talking to, but yeah, it's, it's, it's scientists and it's people in the wine industry who want to know more about wine chemistry. And it's also, you know, people who just think My that mom. it's interesting yeah. and our mothers probably yes, yeah. okay. realistically. Um, so yeah, pH is, is a, a scale to help uh, understand how, how acidic a solution is or not acidic and it's the the a function of the hydrogen ions in the solution so it's like the negative log of the concentration of hydrogen ions if anyone is that excited about that kind of definition (laughs) but it it's just a um a a scale a function of the hydrogen ion concentration in in the solution and so a more acidic solution has a lower ph and has more hydrogen ions and Conversely, a less acidic solution has uh, a higher pH and fewer hydrogen ions present. Um, so wine generally is maybe you might have some white wines or some sparkling wines that are below three, like 2.8, something like that would be on the low end. And then hopefully the high end for red wines is going to be like 3.7, 3.8, although you do sometimes see up towards four, that can that can give you some issues. Um, titratable acidity is a metric that we use to approximate the total organic acids that are present in a wine. We can't um, directly measure those very easily without some more advanced like mass spectrometry kind of techniques, which aren't accessible to very many winemakers. But you can do a direct titration with sodium hydroxide to an agreed upon endpoint for for us generally in the US it's 8.2 and um, that gives you a an estimation of the of the easily accessible um, acids that are present in in a wine and for wine the main acid that's present is tartaric acid and that that's fairly unique for grapes most other fruits don't have tartaric acid um, the next most common acid is malic acid. There's a little bit of citric acid as well. Those are the primary ones. You do generate a few others during fermentation as well. Um, and let's see, pH and TA aren't necessarily, I mean, they are related to one another, but they aren't, there isn't a direct functional relationship between right. them. So you could have a low pH, or sorry, a high pH wine that also has high TA. Um, and, you know, it, it can vary based on, it really depends on the, some other ions that are dissolved in the wine and the buffering capacity of the wine. Totally. Yeah. Um, it's mainly driven by potassium concentrations. I think some sodium also plays into yeah. it as well. Potassium is a big dog though, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So those things kind of just tell you about the acidity of the wine and... I Which mean, is should... one of the, in my opinion, one of the four main structural components of yeah. the wine. So these are really important numbers to track, yeah. you know, and to understand. And not only from just a structure perspective, but a stability Stabilities. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And then we also very frequently will track um, bricks and then what we call glue-throughs. Mm-hmm. And can you comment on what bricks, 
bricks are, what glue frees are, how mm-hmm. we measure them differently, and when we use those terms, how they're helpful, yeah. all the all those kinds so of. So I things. generally, um, I general, I, I will say, res- I say residual sugar rather yeah. than glue frue, but bricks would be uh, the weight percent measurement of sugar in a juice or a fermenting must. Um, so that's the measurement that we use when sugar is abundant in the solution. And as, then as we move through the fermentation towards the end, when there, there's, most of the sugar has been consumed, we're looking at sugar more at a molecular level. And we need to look at the, the glucose. The glufru that you mentioned is um, a specific type of analysis that can measure um, all the glucose or, or fructose that's present still in the wine. I think it really is. There isn't much fructose. It really is just glucose. But this enzymatic kit that you use can measure one or the other of the either of those. Um, but in wine, I think you're pretty much just having glucose. And... Um, but for me, I just use the term residual sugar, yeah. and I use that. It's more encompassing. It's more accurate. That, glu- that uh, glucose yeah. fructose kit to do it as well. Yeah. And so I um, I think both Kayleen and I in our labs use UV-Vis spectrophotometry um, as the tool, and we use enzymatic kits as the, the sample preparation to to look at those small amounts of sugar yeah. left in wine samples. Yeah, it's it's quite literally as simple as buying in vitro isolated enzyme whose job in the cell is to convert glucose into glucose byproducts of the glucose breakdown pathway. And one of the things that's required in that pathway to break down sugar in cells is a cofactor called NAD, NADH, NAD+. Um, And that's a large macrocyclic, not large, but um, it's a macrocyclic compound with a what's called a conjugated pi system if anybody cares out there mm-hmm. um and and that and that pi system gives rise to a very distinct uv vis signal which we can monitor for a lot of things um uh, why is there a different term why is there bricks and why is there like residual sugar and how why are those units different and when might you use them differently well I don't know why they're different. I think we should just talk about... I really don't know either. I think we should always be talking in grams per liter sugar. Yeah, I agree. And we should just think think of it in that terms all the time. But I think... I, I mean, certainly the density scales that people work with, there's other... I don't even know if I know how to pronounce the other ones right, but it's like BOM and Oshel scale. And there's all these other um, old European methods. And I... I mean, they were just alternate methods. I think grams per liter became SI units after some of these things were even, you know, all these things were evolving concurrently. And then we just decided that our SI units were going to be these metric units. and Right. But for historical um, relevance, those other things things were evolving and they were trying different things out. Um, Yeah. And then people like bricks because it's weight percent. So a, a, a lot of people do like to think in percent and for, for instance, even though I tend to convert all of my analyses to grams per liter, um, people often report their titratable acidity, for instance, in grams per 100 milliliters, which I think is dumb. But <laughs> but dumb. that but it is percent. So it, yeah. it, it, it's I guess by volume. People that aren't used to working in a, in scientific fields understand percent better than other things because it's know, more for some reason it's more attainable. And I guess yeah yeah. Yeah. After you spend so much of your life thinking in mills yeah. and thinking in liters, mm-hmm. those 
yeah, those units just make way more sense to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I think the other yeah. part of that question was when would you use one or the other? And so um, bricks we use early on, like at harvest and during ferment when like when there is a lot of sugar, like we were saying before, and then the residual sugar, that's when you're just checking for the completion of dryness because any residual sugar that's left in your ferment can become food for organisms later that can create spoilage in your wine right. whether it's yeast or other back, uh, other yeast other than the yeast that um, saccharomyces that we actually want to to be working or some other bacteria other organisms that can create undesirable desirable characteristics so yeah. we try to get it down to my threshold for dryness in in our cellar is 0.2 grams per liter but the actual we talked about this earlier, the actual tasting threshold of dryness is more like two grams per liter. Right. So you can't really tell yourself if the wine is dry. You do need these um, analytical techniques to be sure. Right. Yes, absolutely. Which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another really important one that we use in the cellar is malic acid monitoring. Mm-hmm. So what, why do you monitor malic acid? And then what can you do with that information? So malic acid, as we said uh, a little earlier, is one of the primary acids in grapes. Um, and it is characteristic of apple apples. Apples have a, the most concentration of malic acid. So it's that really bright, crisp, fresh, um, green apple-y, green apple-y like, flavor, yeah. um, which can be great in a lot of wines. But um, it doesn't really fit in with the profile of like a rich Cabernet Sauvignon, you know. So um, malolactic fermentation um, is a process by which we take advantage of an organism, malolactic bacteria, a couple different species that can convert malic acid to lactic acid. And so lactic acid is um, kind of a creamier, softer, more full-bodied acid. It actually is less acidic. Um, so the malolactic fermentation has a couple of different benefits to it. One, it has that sensory impact that it can um, lend to your to your wine. It can make it more full-bodied, it's a little softer. Um, two, it um, can and does ch- change the acidity, actually change the acidic profile of the wine. It can increase your pH a little bit and um, increase your sorry, decrease your titratable acidity a little bit. And then third, it actually can, there's a, a little bit of wiggle room in here because um, it gets complex, but I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> it, it can actually make your wine more microbi- microbially stable in the long term because it can use up, those bacteria can use up any residual micronutrients that are in the wine that spoilage organisms could use later. Such as? So like some little bits of nitrogen, like okay. thiamine, like other little little vitamins, okay. other like trace metals kind of things oh, okay. that, are, that are needed for organisms. That makes perfect sense. So it's like a last way to like scrounge up some of those little things and make sure they're not available for spoilage organisms yeah. later. But how, however, you have to play bear in mind that that little pH change that happens can actually push you into a range um, of where of where your wine isn't as stable because your um, a lot of microorganisms are inhibited by, by lower pH, pH. Yeah. and so if you move into a higher pH range, you can actually open the door to to having them be a little bit more 
active. Right, absolutely. Um, and to combat them, what, what a segue, um, we can measure SO2 levels, which yes. are not pertinent in all wineries. So that might not be pertinent in a natural winemaking realm, but um, in a lot of wineries, SO2 levels most, are important to yeah, monitor. Wineries, yeah. yeah. And then when what forms do you see SO2 and what forms do you care about SO2 being in? as far as like a winemaking perspective is concerned. So yeah, we, we use SO2 as an antimicrobial and an antioxidant and um, we can, uh, we apply it to the wine generally in either um, liquid SO2 form or in potassium metabisulfite form. And it dissolves into the wine and it, it because it is a soluble um, gas, SO2 is a soluble gas, it can, take different forms depending on the pH of the solution and um, or it exists in many different forms in different percentages um, given the, the pH of the solution and the active form that actually has the antimicrobial effect is SO2 and there's really not much present at the normal pH range of wine but at the lower bracket of, of pH for wine like say below 3.4 that's where SO2 is the most uh, the highest in abundance and, and most available to, to actually have its antimicrobial effect. Um, and so that, that would be called the free SO2 that's dissolved in the wine. And so that's what I'm, I measure the most in the, in the winery. Um, as far as talking about sulfur, I'll, I run, a, I run free sulfurs all the time. Um, yeah. and that's, a an interesting, really, I find really elegant analysis that, that I do, and there's multiple ways to do it, but I use one method called aeration oxidation. And it's a little vacuum distillation uh, setup, and you put a few milliliters of the wine in, in one little ball valve or a little ball container, and you acidulate it with um, phosphoric acid and under, put that under vacuum. And then you draw that, that acidulation forces all the sulfur that's in the wine into the gaseous SO2 form. And then that is pulled off by the vacuum. And then you have another um, vial that you're bubbling into on the other side. And you have a little bit of hydrogen peroxide in there, just like 3% your normal um, drugstore concentration. And that um, peroxide reacts with the, the SO2 and pulls it back into solution. And so you can titrate that vial with just sodium hydroxide and that gives you a calculation of the amount of sulfur that was in your wine sample and i find that really That's elegant so cool. i really yeah it's, and it's beautiful the, oh, the colors oh. that we use are really nice there's yeah. a call it ph indicators that we use with it are really yeah. nice so um did you just phenolphthalein no i or? forget which one it is but it's um it's gr bright beautiful green to bright beautiful purple it's probably oh, similar to the purple that's in your sulfur kit that you were mentioning yeah me well yeah mine's specific to um a redox re or um, a hmm. radical oxygen species reaction oh but i don't know what's the from, from a practical perspective mm -hmm. out of my sheer curiosity because i've never done it that way before that distillate that you collect in the end that's so2 and hydrogen yeah that, hydrogen, that Hydrogen percent, right? Hydrogen peroxide. Yeah, so that oxidizes the... So, yeah, I guess it actually would be pretty similar as far as, like... Because yeah. they're both relying on reactive oxygen species to create an output. Mm -hmm. um, but that volume must be pretty small. Yeah, it's... The, so the wine sample is actually 20 mils, and then the 
um, hydrogen peroxide is 10 mils that you bubble into. Oh, okay. Um, so it, it is a small volume. And so you end up putting that whole, you know, a normal, I'd say a normal free, con- free SO2 concentration for a, a normal wine would maybe be like 30 parts, kind of high yeah. for some people, but kind of low for others. So yeah, kind of right in the middle. Um, so that all of that SO2 then that, that was free and active and available in that wine is pulled off. So that's the free concentration. And then there's also the total sulfur. So a lot of that sulfur that is put into solution isn't actually in the active form. It rea- It's pushed off into a, a species that's not active or it is um, combines with other or with organic matter or um, what, what are some of the other things that we were listing earlier? Leaves, it can interact with like dead yeast cells. It can interact with yeah, yeah. quinones. It can interact with acetaldehyde, all, yep. all, all kinds of stuff in the wine, and and basically be in a bound form. And those don't necessarily release when you acidulate the sample. So you, in order to get those to come off, you have to heat the sample. So that's the the next thing that you add if you want to measure the total sulfur. You kind of have a, a very similar um, distillation setup, but you have to have a condenser so that you're not. Um, getting all the water going through, um, going through the, the vacuum, the vacuum as well. Um, and, but you just have a little heating element underneath it and you have to heat it for a little longer. You run those samples for about 20 minutes as opposed to about 10 minutes. Okay. And then you can get that total sulfur off. So you have two numbers and they're, they're both regulated numbers. So there's, I, I don't even honestly know what the regulation levels are off the top of my head because I've never worked in a winery that comes anywhere near touching those with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not something that's really on my radar, but yeah, you know, we, we look at those numbers more to understand if there's a problem with the wine. Cause if you, if you put 25 parts of sulfur into your wine and you measure it right away and it's only 10, that gives you an indication. There's something going on with something that is wine. Binding that Something's up binding that up. So what's, what's happening. And, um, you know, you need to check the VA. You need to check a few other things and just understand what's happening with your, with the wine. And is there some, um, you know, do you need to filter right away? Do you need, do you need to in- plan to increase the sulfur in this wine? Is there some right. microbial issue happening? Right. So you kind of just offhandedly mentioned the word VA. Can you briefly just say what VA is? Oh yes. Volatile acidity. So that's an indication of spoilage. The main component of that is acetic acid, which is, um, a byproduct generated by acetobacter from in the consumption of alcohol, actually, I believe they're um, converting alcohol to vinegar basically. So um, that's the main one. There's also ethyl acetate, which has a bit more of like a nail polish remover smell. And there's some other yeast and bacteria that can create that. Mm-hmm. And it's so-called volatile acidity because it's acidity that does accumulate and increase in the wine, but, uh, but it can be easily volatilized off. So you smell it really easily Mm -hmm. in the wine, but also you can use that to your advantage as a, um, as an analyst, because you can slightly heat that sample and those gases come off first and you can condense them and titrate them. Yeah. Cash still works. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then one of the more important ones that differentiates grape juice from wine is alcohol. So do you know how you measure final alcohol volumes? I've never measured them, so I don't know. So the um, I use an ebulometer. A what? 
ebulometer. Ebulometer. And that's it's also a, a pretty elegant little device. It's you it's a, a little boiling chamber and it has a condenser as well. And you put a specific volume of wine in. I actually don't know what it is, but it has a line. I, I think it I think it might be like hundred mils or something like that. Yeah. Um and you for, so first what you have to do is heat just pure distilled water and get that boiling temperature because it does change slightly given the atmospheric pressure or whatever temperature and things that are happening in the in the room so you you get a stable boiling point of water measurement for it for that day and then you do the same with your rinse that machine out carefully so there's no water left in there to dilute your sample rinse it with your wine and then boil your wine and then compare those two boiling points and then there's a conversion chart that allows you to calculate the alcohol based on the difference between those two boiling points so that's a cool little yeah that's pretty slick but um because so we don't we're a fairly small winery and we are only ever really looking at the alcohol at just one or two wines at a time you know we don't we don't have like 50 lots of wine that we're working with yeah so um and for any given day for me to work on the ebulometer and get it set up it takes like an hour to get get to get it to the point where okay i'm getting a stable boiling point reading on the water rinse this really well and i you know i do two or three run um repeats of the wine boiling the wine and so that t- takes about an hour, a little longer if you consider collecting the samples. So by the time you pay me to do that, um, it only costs like, you know, less than $20 to send it off and, and run it on, I think they do GCMS or something like that at, mm-hmm. at the um, contracted labs. And then their error is something like 0.1%. And my error is 0.5% right. or more. Um, yeah. So it just kind of makes sense to... Th- there are legal limits on what the alcohol level... Um, well, it's not really limits on what the alcohol can be per se, but it's the alcohol can be whatever it is, but you have to be within a, within a certain amount of error. And it is really important right around the designation of the tax classes. So at 14% and higher you pay more tax for your wine. And is there another tax bracket, like at 16 or 16.5, or am I um, mistaken on that? I think I think there is for fortified wines. Okay. But I think the, the distinction is whether or not it's been fortified. Okay. Um, not whether it's yeah. just some crazy Zinfandel. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't take us for, like, <laughs> yeah. for the Bible on that. We're not yeah. positive, but... Yeah, but... Um, so if you, if you have a... 13.9% wine that you're claiming is 13.9%, but the TTB decides to run it and they find that it's really 14.1%, you're going to get fined. And, you know, if, if I've run it on my my little abuleometer that has a plus or minus 0.5% and I get 13.9, I can't say for certainty that it's not over. Right. So it's better in those kind of cases, especially to send it off so that you have a certified lab with a, re- a report and they, they're telling you what it is and what their error margin are. And then that way, if you get hit by the TTB, you can say, hey, they told us. It's a certified lab. Over here, so. They're ISO certified. <laughs> yeah. They said. So, yeah. 
then yeah. you know you have you have a leg to stand on, so to speak. So. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of want to wrap up thinking about being an enologist, but how how often do you work directly with the winemaker? How often are you autonomous? Um, I mean, I work with the know? winemakers every day. Um, at least every day that I'm doing production stuff. I, I do have a few other roles in the winery too. Um, but I don't know. Okay. There's a lot of things that I, like I was kind of alluding to earlier. There's a lot of things that I have a regular schedule that I just, I know that I'm going to analyze and especially when we're in sort of barrel aging time periods, just like monthly analysis. So I'm breaking up the lots of wine so that I'm running a chunk of them every week and I don't have to ask what, what I need to run, but I definitely, you know, there's a lot of more active times a year when we're bottling frequently or when we're getting grapes in or when we're going to be picking grapes that, um, I, things change are changing rapidly. So I definitely need to check in with the winemakers and ask what's happening this week. What do you need from me? And a lot of times there's last minute things at like four yeah. thirty. like, Hey, can you please run this, this and this? Cause we need this for tomorrow. Yeah. Like, mm, yes, definitely. I'd love to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other things that I have a lot of fun working with the winemakers with is are doing, um, various trials, um, so we'll do blending trials, determining what um, the final blend on a lot of wine is going to be. We'll do product trials. Um, maybe there's a there's a ton of companies out there that are making all these um, winemaking products, and they will you know they can sell ice to an Eskimo. They want to <laughs> they want to sell you all this stuff. Like we're gonna this is gonna be the best wine ever. You gotta make it and. And it helps to be a little skeptical with these things. Oh my know, god! You, yeah, you know, you don't want to, um, you don't, you don't want to add too much. To, you, you want the wine to be its own thing. But sometimes a wine is just not clarifying for some reason. There's something going. So you, there's you know various like bentonite products or protein products that you can use to help clarify or stabilize the wine. Um, cold stability right. is making a, a wine cold stable. It, the the way that we've been doing it for a long time is just chilling the heck out of the wine so that the tartrates precipitate yeah. out. But that's really expensive and not a very green way to do it. Right. You're running a chiller on a large volume of wine for a long period of time. It's not, not really that green. Yeah. So there's a bunch it's of products. It's a chiller typically, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of products that people or, or various companies are pro- um, producing and putting out to, to create, um, tartrate stability in the wine without having to chill. So we'll, we'll test little products like that on little side, lots of wine. Um, we'll test different wine making strategies like percent lees in a, in a bottle or different closures and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so that's kind of fun. So I I do have like short-term bench trials that are just add this and see how it tastes. And then I have long-term cellar trials that are, you know, over a year. Right. That's kind of fun. Yeah, that seems like the fun one to kind of like play with to actually see how things evolve over a long period mm-hmm. of time. I mean, that's that's the whole industry, I guess. I just not the whole industry, but I just kind of summarized a big part of it, mm-hmm. seeing how things change as a function of a very long mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So I guess the final question is then, why do you think the role of an enologist is an important complement to a winemaker? Because you did mention that, you know, not every 
And I, I agree. I mean, one of our good friends who were just hanging out with Megan, she's the everything of Margin's wine, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she, um, but what does a what does a enologist bring to the table that isn't maybe always inherent in a winemaker? Why why are you a good compliment? Well, I mean, in general, I think it is really important to monitor the chemistry of wine because you know, although there is all this art and and mystery and magic to it, it's still a business and it's a, a financial endeavor that's being under, undertaken. And um, it, you're really doing yourself a disservice if you don't do your due diligence to be sure that you can't detect a problem happening before it happens. Right. And, um, you know, you, you just don't want to take a huge financial loss. And by investing a small amount in um, some simple and simple analyses, you don't have to go crazy you can really understand what's happening with your wine and prevent a lot of, um, you know, major issues from, from really taking root. And, um, I think that's a, most winemakers, I think, can either do those simple analyses themselves or can, um, can understand that data really easily. But, um, I think where the enologist really comes in is um, digging digging into what, what were you gonna say? Skepticism. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Oh, I didn't even think about it that way. You know. Yeah. It's a lot of enologists have backgrounds in mm-hmm. in in some sort of hard science, mm-hmm. you know, and we gravitate towards enology for one reason or another. But the like the core foundation I think of us is that we have a science background mm-hmm. and we're we're raised in skepticism, mm-hmm. you know. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't believe that number yeah, exactly. Unless I can show that it's yeah. Real. Like I can't say many times. Like, well, did we? So you ran this number before and you didn't trust it. Did you run it again mm-hmm. um, with this new set of reagents? Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. did you control for all of these things? Mm-hmm. Like, you have a mindset of control and of skepticism, and mm-hmm. and that's not something that a lot of winemakers. I mean, this is not true. I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, but like, it's. I feel like it's more inherent. To enologists to be always thinking about controlling things and experiments, controlling experiments in particular, and having a healthy dose of skepticism. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what enologists bring to the table, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think just there, there's so much that we, in, in day-to-day winemaking, that everybody takes for granted now that was discovered because somebody really dug in to the science of of wine and I mean even things like you know almost everybody aside from some of our natural winemaking friends are going to add just a little bit of sulfur at crush Mm -hmm. with your with the wine um, sorry with your grapes at crush and that helps inhibit some of the early spoilage organisms that can cause some off flavors and also some early oxidation um, to the to the grapes before fermentation kicks in and Saccharomyces take over and kind of control the situation um but that was not always commonplace even and i think that's only like in the last 10 years even and that was coming out of um a, a lot of research people that really dug into the microbiology and the and the chemistry of what was happening with yeah. the sulfur and that i mean that that's actually like published scientific research that, right that figured all that stuff out so yeah yeah, I think I was talking to this, this is kind of a little off topic, but I was talking to John Locke not too long ago about 
how they used to use ash in wine. And he was like, why would they use ash in wine? This doesn't make any sense to me. And I was like, oh, it's probably sulfur, dude. Like, yeah, I just don't know if I'm right, but I could, I could still be wrong. It wouldn't be the first time and it won't be the last time. Okay, let's wind down and let's close out with some questions that aren't necessarily related to lab analyses because okay. I have been thinking about it all day <laughs> now since literally 12 hours ago. So I'm ready to stop thinking about it. Um, do you prefer coffee or tea? And mm. if so, how do you take your coffee or your tea? Hmm. I think like just for pure enjoyment, I prefer coffee with half and half. I like that's my favorite, but I, that amount of caffeine is really not necessary in my life. <laughs> So what I ADD yes don't need coffee yeah. <laughs> yeah so what I typically um do is is tea I'll do like a couple cups of green tea a day and I just just plain green tea if you could jump on the magic school bus and go anywhere where would you go hmm well that's gonna change all the time depending on you know my mood and how hungry I am. Uh, <laughs> Um, all those kind of things, but um, right now it's. It, I think it's got to be somewhere warm and tropical because it's just we're, we have not gotten summer yet here in Santa Cruz. I'm, I'm like had to borrow your your fluffy jacket because it's so know. cold today. So I'm, I've been today. I was just thinking about Hawaii. I mean, I think I need a Hawaiian island tropical. Oh gosh, that sounds magical so flying bus. Nice. It's gonna have to be a flying bus, right? Oh yeah, totally. Have you seen bus. the magic school bus? <laughs> no. Oh, right on the magic school bus. Okay. So typically, I should have prefaced that. I'm so sorry. It's a flying bus. I don't. It's a flying fucking bus. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. I know nothing about pop culture, but they used to ride the magic school bus to like places inside your body, so you could like see how your blood flows oh, or cool. see how your heart pumps. Oh, I didn't yeah. know I could go do that. I <laughs> forget about Hawaii. I would, yeah. I'm gonna know how the endocrine system works. Talk about them. I'm fascinated. Yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> how you like jumped on a bus and then flew into your mouth and ended up in your blood is beyond me. But I was seven. So I totally bought it. <laughs> oh man, yeah. my parents were hippies. I didn't get to watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> um, what Instagram account do you know you spend too much time on? Oh, um, I don't really. Oh, good for you. I don't really know. I just kind of flip through and put hearts on things, and yeah, I don't. Really... <laughs> Like that's cute. I like drop that. a heart there. And yeah. I drop a heart there. Yeah. Um, I actually the things that I, there's one that I really love, and I I'm constantly sending photos to my husband. Um, it it's called like Natural Ohio or something like that, and it's this guy that's a a great photographer, and he's always going out and capturing these beautiful landscapes and waterfalls and things in in Ohio. And you know, having grown up in Ohio, I know that it's beautiful. And my husband has never been there. And he's like, why would anyone ever go to Ohio? So I, and he's a photographer, my husband. So I keep sending right. him these beautiful pictures and, and trying to convince him that he should come to Ohio with me, at least just for a trip, not to move for he a vacation. He hasn't even, like, no, been no. Do you have family there still? I, I don't have it. None of my immediate family is okay. still there. Okay. But uh, like a ton of my great friends are still there and yeah. cousins and stuff. So yeah. we, we definitely need to go, but. Yeah. He's like, Hawaii, Ohio. Hmm. You're like, Hawaii. Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm working too much today. <laughs> <laughs> We're drinking water also for the record. For the record, yeah. yeah. Um, 
what was your favorite age between 9 and 15? Hmm. I don't know. You're like, it was all kind of awkward. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in fifth grade, I was like around nine. Like, I had to have my desk like separate from everyone else's in a corner of the room because because again abby crystal add right right i was, I was like poking people and like making noise and, um my teacher was like you are in the corner and go over there um and like Man, things, things incredibly improved. exclusive things improved from there um but yeah i would say none of those were really my favorite years i guess maybe seventh grade so that with, with that like 12-ish right yeah, there. Uh-huh. I met my best friend from, from all, for all the rest of those years in seventh grade. So that was a really fun year. Okay. When I met her. That was awesome. Yeah. Good good year. We're going to go 12 then. Mm-hmm. 12 sounds good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I might have probably should be like, yeah, 12 or 15, 14. I don't know. I got into band camp when I was 14. It got weird after that. <laughs> clarinet, section leader in band camp. I just, oh, whew, lots changed. <laughs> Just one time. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, you're the first person to ever say that to me. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and then the last question is, what are you thankful for today? Hmm. I'm thankful to be here, um, which is like a, a little bit of a loaded statement Yeah. Uh, for people that don't know me, but I am very thankful just to be here today and to be here hanging out with you and to yeah. to get a chance to sit down and actually chat for an yeah. extended period of time. It's That's been nice. Been, it's been very nice. It's been a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you'd like to promote for yourself or any projects that you're in love with or, you know? I'm really excited about... Uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains Appalachian right now and and for the future of that Appalachian I think it's going good places um, there's there's a lot of history here and then in the past maybe five years we've started to see some really like incredible winemakers coming in and um and utilizing our our fruit, and maybe even longer than that. Maybe it's been ten years, and um, and just really making it shine in a way that um, is is drawing some national attention. And that's not to say that there hasn't been, haven't been great winemakers here all along, but right. but there's winemakers that are connected to all these different psalms and restaurants and places that are coming in. So it's drawing attention to our little area which I really am excited about and looking forward to seeing where that goes yeah. and um, just how how good the wines can be from, from this little area. Yeah, I agree. It's a wonderful area to be in right now, and I'm, yeah, I've got good people in it too. Mm-hmm. So It's a good community. Exactly. Well, thank you for spending the evening with me, Abby. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Kayleen. Thank you.
Thank you.